Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. This time we continue our ongoing celebration of classic Brit flicks, and this one is another LGBT-themed movie that came out nearly 30 years ago. In 1992, prolific screenwriter Neil Jordan created The Crying Game, which mixed race, gender, sexuality and nationality with a backdrop of the ongoing Irish Troubles. Neil would go on to win an Oscar for the film, while it also received multiple nominations and a BAFTA for Best UK Movie. The BFI named The Crying Game the 26th Best British Film of All Time. Well, three decades on, Ashley's been reminiscing with Neil from his home in Ireland. I wanted to bring on board and talk about The Crying Game because, from a, just from a personal perspective, it's one of those films for me, uh, and there haven't been many, that's one, and maybe The Talent of Miss Ripley is another one, where I've been completely sort of gobsmacked by, luckily nobody had told me what the film, either of those films were about, and I went yeah. to the cinema not knowing anything at all. And the fantastic thing about that film, um, The Crying Game, is there's so, so many twists and turns. You really mm. don't know what's going to happen next. And when everybody, anybody asks me what's it about, I just say, just go and watch it. You know, just go mm. and watch it. It's fantastic for that. Mm. Um, so that's my, my personal, um, you know, sort of re- reflection on it. And, and obviously it tackled so many different issues. And it was really important for me as well because I was a... Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm LGBT, so there's elements of that in it and sort of connected with me at the time. And I was a young mm. man, in, I think it was about 20 actually at the time. So tell me, where did it all come from? Where did, it, where did the idea come from? And how did it all sort of, you know, take us back to the very early, early years, if you can, okay, okay. Before, it, before it was, you know, on, on screen. Yeah, well, the first movie I made was called Angel. You know, it was set in the north of Ireland with Stephen Ray, incidentally. Immediately after I'd finished that movie, I went on to do a movie called The Company of Wolves, which people probably know. But I'd written out this tiny little uh, sketch for another film, you know, and uh, because I had read some article in a newspaper about, about a British soldier who was held captive in the north of Ireland and, you know, by an IRA unit and... There was a strange kind of um, a strange kind of symbiosis between himself and his captors, and I don't quite remember what it was. But I sketched out this. I sketched out basically the first third of the movie. You know, when Stephen Ray captures Forrest Whitaker, you know, at a uh, at a little fairground and holds him captive. Yeah, and uh, after the death of his captive, played by Forrest, he uh, goes to London. And uh, out of a sense of guilt, he contacts the soldier's wife. Yeah. Now, initially, it was called The Soldier's Wife. And uh, I wanted the movie to be about race and about sexuality and about politics and about all these things. But every time I came to London, it got terribly ordinary for some reason. And uh, so I put it aside and I made several other movies. And then I came back to it after a few years later, after I'd made a movie called The Miracle, I think, which absolutely nobody went to see. And uh, I thought, okay, if I make this woman a man, you know, if I make, now the term we would use nowadays would not be the same as the term we would have used then. But if I make this, this woman a man, yeah, 
presents as a woman, yeah, the entire story could perhaps be different. So I got very excited about that. And I began to rewrite it and the section of captivity became um, full of all sorts of strange resonances and metaphors, you know, and uh, the sense of kind of union between the Stephen Ray's character and Forrest Whitaker's character became incredibly tense, you know, and incredibly sexualized somehow, you know, and the whole story began to make sense, you know, and the minute I made that decision, I wrote, I rapidly went to the end, wrote it to the very end of the film, really, and so that was the process, that's how it happened, really, you know, so it was, but it often happens that way with me, you know, I I come up with an idea or a set of sketch, a sketch for a series of scenes, and then I can't find the resolution of it until I put it aside for some time and then come back to it, you know. So but that, that's what happened with, with The Crying Game. So I wrote the script. It was about race. It was about sexuality. It was about political violence. It was about captivity. It was about the Stockholm Syndrome. It was about guilt. I showed it to Steve Woolley, my producing partner, and we set about trying to finance it, and it was nobody wanted to finance it. It was very difficult to finance, you know. And it was really interesting, actually, why it was so difficult, because um, at the time... Did it have just the, too many controversial things in it all at once? It's not that, but at, at the time, the, uh, the fact that the soldier was black, yeah, was as big a barrier to people's acceptance of the, the possibilities of the movie as was the fact that there was you know, a trans element in it, you know, and uh, it was really weird. And it's really weird in these days of um, Black Lives Matter and all that sort of stuff to realize what extraordinary resistance there was to even kind of broaching the idea of race, you know, in, in, in a movie, in a British or Irish movie, not, not to talk about an American one. It, it, it was always terribly difficult to, to broach those ideas in an American film, you know. A, a movie I'd made previous to that was called Mona Lisa, with Bob Hoskins and Kathy Tyson. And uh, when we showed it in America, I remember everybody saying to me, you could never have made this film in America the way it is now. So it's kind of really weird to look at it from, you know, from those kind of perspectives nowadays, you know. And it's also very strange to look at it from the perspective of, you know, all sorts of transitioning kind of, conversations at the moment you know because uh at the time when the film came out gender studies was not as big a thing as, as it is now in american universities you know and uh so the film came out when that whole wave of examining gender issues was kind of beginning you know and uh i don't know whether it feels like an art an artifact now in regard to that kind of conversation or not. But anyway, it's, it is what it is. It was incredibly difficult to, to get made. Eventually, Channel 4 put some money into it and decided to finance it, but they would only finance it if I wrote, if I came up with a different ending. So I wrote this fake happy ending to the film, which was really absurd, you know? It was kind of, there's a reference to some like it hot in it and all that, you know? And I really didn't even want to attach it to the script, but it was once I had attached that to the script, we got the green light. And when we came to shoot the movie, I remember saying to the producers, look, this shooting these, this ending is a waste of money. Can we please not do it? It's just absurd. It doesn't even uh, relate to anything the film is about. And they all said, no, we have to shoot it. We have to shoot it. So 
I shot this absolutely absurd ending. And then when everyone saw the movie, I said, well, can I give me a bit of money? I'll go and shoot, a, you know, an appropriate ending to this film. And, you know, they did that. So, so it was, it was a difficult film to make. And it was, uh, they showed it on television in Ireland recently now, and I never watched the movies. I tried not to watch the movies I've made, but I did watch it. And I remember thinking we had so little money at the time and I could see the, I could see the poverty, you know, in the image making. And uh, even to this day, I don't know whether that was added to the charm or the kind of rigor of the movie or whether it hindered in some way, you know, but it was, it was, yeah, it was one of those movies where, you know, you just have to kind of make with whatever resources you can get to make, you know, really. I think it added to it, to, to, be, to be honest, because, it, you know, it, 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 there's a sense of realism about it, in a way. You do yeah, feel, there is, yeah. It doesn't feel like, a, you know, some Hollywood blockbuster kind of thing. That's sort of, oh, no, I understand, well, I understand that. But to me, me, it's the creation of the image and the lighting of the streets and... Yeah. All of that stuff is paramount, you know, it kind of is paramount. It, it doesn't, it, you know, it's, uh, I'm not talking about making it Hollywood. I'm just no. talking about the actual, the actual uh, amount of time we had to shoot certain crucial scenes, you know. I think it stands up. I've watched it recently. I think it stands up really well. Um, so, yeah, so you had all these controversial topics in there. I mean, obviously you'd had quite, you'd, you'd been mulling over this for quite a long time, hadn't you, in terms of, you know, what you wanted to do with it kind of thing. Um, do you think if, it had, if, you'd, if you'd done it a few years before when you'd first started thinking about it, that it might have been a different, a different, uh, different product? Well, if I'd, done it when I was first, when I, if I'd done it when I was first thinking about it, the uh, uh, Jay Davison's character would have been a woman, quite simply, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but it, I mean, there was about three or four years, about more, maybe five years between when I first thought of the story and when I first finished the script, you know, so... Yeah, no, but uh, at the time, it was a very, very horrible time in the north of Ireland, you know, and you had the strange irony that uh, some black British squaddies would have to be patrolling Belfast streets, you know, and would be treated in quite a racist manner by the rather oppressed communities they themselves were uh, you know were in some cases trying to defend in other cases trying to patrol do you understand what i mean so there was all these weird ironies going on and that's what i found really interesting is the contradictions between uh, you know the contradictions between all of our presumptions about race about resistance about revolution about revolt and you know, when, it, when, when the issue of sexuality was added into that mix, it all became really interesting and combustible, combustible and it kind of finished yeah, itself. I mean, we, we, we produce um, another podcast called Bisexual Brunch, um, one of the first podcasts ever around bisexuality. And, and we, one of the first episodes we did actually was around uh, being black and bisexual in mm. America. And so you've got another mm. issue there. And I can imagine with, you know, the black character in this and then the sort of the the trans connection and all the rest of it. There was, there'd be lots of people who were watching it who mm. were sort of, I, I would pre presume there'd be a fair amount of people who enjoyed it, but a lot of people would be fairly uncomfortable with a lot of its subject matter in, in many ways. Oh, I think there would have been, yeah. Well, I mean, actually the Irish community in London, you know, in England, you know, which is mainly kind of working class immigrant community, uh, would have taken great exception to the involvement of an Irish character in trans issues, you know? 
but it was really interesting because uh, to shoot the movie, you know, when I was when I was casting the film, first of all we had to look for we had to look for somebody who could play Jay Davison's part, the part of Dill, and it seemed almost impossible to find, you know, and uh, you know, so I began looking around the trans community, which, you know, <laughs> it was hard to find it, ferret it out at the time. And it was really interesting because I met all these people and they weren't, they weren't all medically transitioning then because that option was not totally available, but some of them were living as women, you know, and some of them were living as some of the men were living as women, not so many women living as men, but they all had the same story to tell, you know, and it was almost like the story in the movie. They all met in a bar or in a, some kind of disco or some kind of club. They would all meet a man as a woman, yeah? And uh, generally it was an Irish man, oddly enough, you know? And it would always lead up to this point where uh, they had to disclose what their gender, or you know, what their physicality was, you know? And they would have to say, look, I've something to tell you. And inevitably they would say the same story. The, their partner would say, oh, well, I, I don't mind, or I kind of knew that, or whatever. Do you understand what I mean? It was kind of an, it was interesting, actually. It was interesting, because we had to populate that bar in which Stephen Ray's character finds himself, you know, and we had to populate it with, uh, you know, with kind of a set of characters that he would misread, you know. And my conversation with Oscar-winning screenwriter Neil Jordan continues in just a few minutes. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia is home to some fascinating conversations with the names behind some iconic films of the 20th century. And we've a special treasure trove of interviews and reunions around great British film. There's Morris. And the phone went, and it was James Ivory on the phone. He went, he went well, it's, it's, Jim, it's Jim here, and I just wanted to tell you uh, in person that you're it, you're Morris. That's exactly what he said, you're it, you're Morris. And I went, bless you. <laughs> And then we chatted for a few minutes, and, and then we, my mother and I did a little jig around the kitchen. When you've spent, say, three months doing a period piece, and then you move back to doing a modern piece, you haven't got that framework of class and manners to hang anything onto. It becomes about something much subtler and much more interesting, I think. And my beautiful laundrette. I think actually working on it and sticking two fingers up to what was going on around us in real life 
was such an electrifying thing. And I think that was felt by all the crew, the cast, everybody. We felt as though we were actually fighting back against the system in our own little way. Distinct nostalgia. Celebrating great British movies. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or browse our existing programmes at distinctnostalgia.com. The thing is, when I was watching the, the crying game, I think I had an inkling that there was going to be some kind of twist um, around uh, sexuality or gender. I wasn't sure whether you were going to take it down the trans side or it was going to be somebody who was actually cross-dressing because a lot of straight men who cross-dress. Um, but, of course, you, you took it further and it became about transgender. Talk to us a little bit about the the detail because there was a lot of detail in this film you went to great lengths didn't you um how did you go about that well it was just it's 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 all a matter of character really it's a matter of getting the characters right you know i mean if you don't get the character right in a film like that you're dead really and the biggest challenge was finding somebody who could play the character deal you know the the character jay davis's character and uh i did loads of tests you know i even tested kathy tyson who was in Mona Lisa, yeah, who kind of had the same facial kind of, um, same facial uh, profile, you know, the same kind of elegance and kind of thinness and same rather boyish beauty that Jay Davidson had, you know. Uh, But eventually, uh, I think it was Derek Jarman said to the casting director that he knew this character from the club scene you know, that was, uh, had this beautiful androgynous quality. And we met Jay and Jay had never acted before, you know, so I did a rapid test with Jay Davidson and, you know, I kind of rapidly realized, well, he can, he can be this character, you know, in in a way that nobody else could. It was like finding a needle in a haystack, but it was the good needle, you know. Fantastic. And the rest of the cast, I mean, it was a fun, it was a really good cast. I mean, you, you tell us a bit about some of them and how you, how you managed to cast those. I wrote the movie with Stephen Ray in mind, you know, and as I was writing it and as I was developing the story, I would discuss aspects of it with Stephen. Forrest Whitaker, I had met in Cannes at, a, uh, at the festival and I'd had, had a discussion with Forrest. So the minute when I wrote the character of the soldier, I sent the script to Forrest and uh, he loved it and wanted to play it. But at the time, there was a lot of controversy in Britain about me casting an American actor in the role that a black British actor should have taken, you know? So it was one of those things, you know, Miranda Richardson, again, she wasn't from the North of Ireland, but she's one of the best actors alive. I cast Miranda and, uh, you know, it was quite a limited cast really, you know, it was. But it, talking about the story itself, I mean, it has lots and lots of great, as I said at the beginning, lots and lots of great um, um, twists and turns in it. Um, mm. And when it first went out, did, you know, what was the reaction you got from people in terms of, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't remember exactly, I remember, I remember it coming out because I watched it at the time, but what was the original response from the critics? From critics? Yeah. What did they say? Okay, well, initially we released it in England. Yeah. And uh, they were quite sniffy about it, really, you know. It was a very small release, and we released it, and they were kind of, hey, yeah, this is okay, but it's kind of unbelievable, blah, blah, blah. They were quite, quite dismissive of the movie. 
And so the movie played for a few weeks and then vanished, yeah? And then we came to release it in the United States. And I remember I wrote a letter to all of the critics in the United States. And I asked them, I said, if there's a way that you can, if there's a way that you can talk, discuss this movie, whether you like it or hate it, yeah, without revealing the central twist or the central, you know, the central kind of um, slate of hand in the film, I would really appreciate it. And they all managed to do that. In the New York Times, actually, they even changed their house style, you know, because they normally say he or she or Miss or Mr. They changed their house style to, to actually discuss the movie and write reviews about it, which was really cool, you know? So then it became a thing, it kind of became a phenomenon in the United States, you know? And uh, it was kind of weird, kind of, because everyone's saying, a lot of, you know, journalists were saying, look, we really need to discuss, we really need to talk about this film. There are issues in this film we want to talk about. And Miramax, the company, is saying, you cannot reveal the secret in any way, shape, or form. This is even after the movie came out, you know. And uh, then Jay Davison was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor, yeah? And they were still calling it the movie with a secret. <laughs> it was, come on, man. You know, it became, it became a little bit absurd. But... I don't know, still people went to it. Even when Jay was nominated as Best Actor, they still went to it and they were still shocked. And I think part of the reason is that uh, Forrest Whitaker's character, he dies in the first 30 minutes of the film and, he goes to, and they think, oh, that's, that's, the, that's the secret. I saw that coming all along. And then they see something else. And they kind of go, oh my God, yeah. But anyway, I think it's mainly testament to the just to the power of the story and of Jay's performance, really, you know, because Jay played it neither as a woman or a man, but as a, as a kind of an erotic figure, really, you know, as a very desire, such a desirable figure, the audiences got seduced, you know, by, by, by the beauty of that character, really, you know. Hmm? I, think, I think you're absolutely right. How did it go down in Ireland? In Ireland? <laughs> it went down very well, yeah. It did go down very well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but it was a bit, I think the entire of the, uh, the, uh, the, what's it called? The IRAs, the IRA have a, they've got a bunch of people who run the organization. I think they all hired a cinema in Belfast and went along to watch it, you know. The, the, and I don't know, they didn't shoot me anyway, let's put it that way. And of course, this was all before Good Friday agreements and all that kind of thing, wasn't it? It was. It was, yeah. It, it, the troubles were still raging, weren't they? Basically, they were raging. They were raging. Yeah, you they know. were. Yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting. What, what was the? Just remind me, because I always forget. There was a little. There's a little story, isn't there, that keeps coming back in the little little. Um, little oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a story. That's a story that was in the, an Orson Welles movie called Mister Arcaden. It's about. Uh, a scorpion and a frog, hmm? which Orson Welles claims he heard off some Arab in Tangier or something like that. But I remember that story. I remember seeing the movie and reading it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to put this into the movie because it does tell a truth about human nature, you know. So when you look back at the movie, The Crying Game, you know, how does it sit in terms of your career? You know, um, how important was it for you in terms of your progress as a as a filmmaker and screenwriter? Well, it was very important for me because it was a movie that where I could, uh, I could challenge everything, you know, and I managed to get it made, 
you know? I mean, I thought if I didn't get The Crying Game made, I would probably stop making movies and just, because I also write books, you know? And if I can't get this movie made, it's not, it's not worth my while trying to work in this industry anymore, you know? So it showed me that it was worth, it was worth my while continuing trying to make individual and idiosyncratic movies in this, in the industry that we have, you know? And of course, you, you know, it won an Oscar, didn't it? I won an Oscar. And, and, and I, I just think it was, I think it, I personally think it was a groundbreaking film because of all those issues that you tackled and the way you mm. tackled it. Mm. Um, it was, it was pretty groundbreaking, but in a way it also, you were saying how well it was received in America and then not so well in Britain. It's sort of for a lot of people. No, but after we released it in America and it became a big success, and they re-released it in England, and yeah. then everybody celebrated. Everyone celebrated. <laughs> it. Exactly, strange. exactly. Yeah. But it just—it does still seem as though, in a way, that it, it for some people it's still a bit under the radar. You know what I mean? I, I think it was a really good film, but it—it it doesn't. You know, when I mention it to people, a lot of people say, "What? What's that?" They've heard of it, but they don't really know a great deal about it. You know what I mean? I, I feel as though it's one of those that we've forgotten about a little bit and maybe, deserve, maybe deserves a bit more exposure you know what I mean yeah maybe 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 I mean the way it was it was part of the it was part of the expansion of independent movies in the United States as well there was sex lives and videotapes you know which tiny little movie people need to see there was Mona Lisa everyone wanted to see that there was Shakespeare in Love I think perhaps there was the crying game you know and they were increasingly getting more and more and more bigger and bigger audiences and bigger numbers in America, you know. And then I suppose that space was t entirely taken up by Quentin Tarantino when Pulp Fiction came out, independent movie that everybody wanted to see, you know. I suppose it was also a lot to do with the, with the rise of Miramax, you know, you know, as well. I don't know, people, it's, you know, it, it, nowadays it's uh, kind of, audiences tastes are towards superheroes and all that sort of stuff yeah. aren't they and action movies and you know so it's it's still very popular in the lgbt community i know that it's, well i hope uh, so talk, 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 <laughs> yeah. about quite, talk about it quite yeah. a bit how important was channel four in terms of supporting you and making it happen then well they were very important i mean channel four was very important actually in my whole career as a filmmaker you know the first movie i ever made angel was financed by channel four almost in its entirety and, uh, you know, so I'm a Channel 4 creature in a way, you know, as is probably Stephen Frears and not quite Ken Loach. But, you know, there was a whole generation of filmmakers that came up in the 80s that were for whom Channel 4 was actually critically important, you know, really important. It changed. Well, it, it, yeah, it's um, it just changed the weather, didn't it, in terms of filmmaking? Yeah, it was also Britain, a very exciting time in British cinema, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm an Irish person, you know, and they were so welcoming to me, you know. I mean, the, the resistance to this movie didn't come from the British industry, you know. It came from the financiers you need in France and the United States and all that sort of stuff, you know. But it was, uh, I mean, it was a great time for, in British cinema. It really was because they were really, they were really welcoming alternative voices and, you know, different kind of perspectives. And they'd accept a little vagrant Irish man like me as a, as a filmmaker, which to me was amazing, you know. And my conversation with Oscar-winning screenwriter Neil Jordan continues in just a few minutes.
Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Distinct Drama. Fresh and original. Mr. Fenn, I assure you that I have not come here to murder you, however tempted I may be. A terse 40-minute drama set in a US correctional facility. Oh, I see. You wish to be sent to the electric chair. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 Mr. Fenn. That would not do at all. Starring the award-winning Joe Sims. In short, Mr. Fenton, you are what may be regarded as disposable humanity. Don't you dare think that I started all of this out of political ambition. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Daniels, I do think that. And to show you that there is such a thing as redemption. To show you that you are educable and have potential. Show me? Show me, Mr. Daniels? I think you're done showing me my potential. As we forgive them. Available now. To place yourself in the center of a dream doesn't make it a bad one. And this dream, my dream, in whatever depths of despair it may have been born, has become the start of something real. Listen at distinctnostalgia.com or search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband and their mixed-race family growing up in Salford in the early 1970s. A clash of cultures and generations ensues. Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him. And I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel and Chris Bisson. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time, to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. This series of special interviews is available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Are you finding that radio stations aren't quite in tune with you anymore? Try the new one. It's called Boom Radio. Your favourite music from the 60s and 70s, spiced with some 50s and some newer tracks too, all played by some of the radio voices you grew up with. From David Hamilton to Graham Dean, Nicky Horn and Esther Ranson. Try Boom Radio today on DAB or you can find us online on your phone, laptop or smart speaker. Boom Radio, music and conversation for our generation. Boom Radio. Now, of course in all films, um not everything goes smoothly, does it? <laughs> um are there any funny stories of things that, you know, didn't quite go as planned? 
um, in making the crying game? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there, there was one critical thing actually, <laughs> because uh, I was meeting a lot of people who were going through transition. You know, you know, a lot of them were taking the um, hormones. You know, so the faces would change. They would grow, begin to grow breasts and all that sort of stuff. And some of them would go, you know, go through the operations. You know, and uh, when we came to the critical scene where Jay had to uh, be seen naked, yeah? We, uh, he, had, he had done about four or five, we shot, you know, at least half of the film at that stage. So we came to the scene where Stephen Ray had to begin kissing his shoulders and then his robe opens and he sees his dick, yeah? And uh, Jay came in for rehearsal in that scene wearing the little robe that I'd chosen, but a pair of silk underpants, you know? And I went, oh shit, you know? I've never asked to see this man naked. I thought maybe he has, you know, he's differently gendered or something, or maybe he's, he's gone through the, and I, I said to his, his, his uh, dresser, for some reason, Jay had a dresser. We didn't have that much money. Anyway, I said, I pulled him aside. I said, do you realize Jay has to be seen naked in this film? And he goes, in this scene, and he goes, oh, I don't think he'd agree to that. And I went, oh, my God, I don't know, what, who have I cast? And uh, I had to go, I said, Jay, you have to be naked in the scene. You, you realize that? He went, oh, sure, okay. He goes in, takes off his pants, and it was fine. <laughs> but that was, that was um, a little bit of a risque moment, let's put it that way, yeah. Well, um, of course, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, at that particular time, we didn't, you know, it's, we're talking to nearly 30 years ago. Nobody really talked about these things. Nobody really knew how to approach the whole issue of trans, did they, really? It was, they didn't, no. It was very, very early days in that sense, you know. Yes, yeah, so it was totally which, early days, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, the other thing, of course, which your, your, the film had, uh, was a fantastic um, soundtrack. Uh, I mean, you, you, you tell us a little bit about that. How did, uh, how did all that sort of come about? And, and, well, I mean, Anne Dudley composed the music, you know. The score, yeah. Uh, I had been, for some reason, I've been obsessed with that song, The Crying Game. For I wrote, a, I wrote a book of short stories when I was 24 called Night in Tunisia and Other Stories. And it, it, it referenced Dave Berry was his name, The Crying Game. I remember that when I was a kid, that song. I don't know why I remember it. I just thought it was a really cool song. Very sad, kind of mystical, weird. Quite haunting, in a way. Haunting. Yeah, very haunting song. And... Uh, so I wrote it into the screenplay, you know, and when we came and I, you know, placed it right at the center of the action, really, eventually I called, I, I gave it the title of the movie at the time. We had no, we hadn't got the same title for that film, for the film. And uh, we, Stephen Woolley put me in touch with uh, Pet Shop Boys, yeah. And I played them the song and they said, la, they said, they thought it would be cool. And I said, well, let's get boy George to sing it because I always loved his voice. I didn't know the dude from Adam, you know. Um, so, you know, they got boy George. They did this rather wonderful version of it. And it became a big, big hit, you know. And then at the end, we used, uh, I remember I was with my wife in a chip shop as we were just cutting the movie. And we heard Lyle Lovett sing that Dolly Parton, song, Dolly Parton song, sometimes it's hard to be a woman, you know, stand by your man. 
I thought, oh, that's really cool. It's this guy singing this woman's song, you know? So we ended up using that. So I wanted to use the Percy Sledge song at the start, you know? So it became a kind of a, you know, certain bits of popular music were kind of threaded through the soundtrack, which Anne did, which was rather wonderful. Yeah, and it added to it immensely. It was, it was, it was really, really, really good. Really, really good. So when yeah. you, looking at the film, you know, how do you, as the person who, you know, created and, and wrote this, what, you know, if somebody was to say to you, what's the, what's the, what's the core message from this film? I'm not saying everybody needs to have a message. You know, not everyone's Ken Loach with a message. <laughs> but mm. what do you, would you say was the, the message? What do, what, what, do you, what do you think the people who are watching it um, should go away with and learn? You know, what, what, you, what were you trying to achieve? Well, it's a movie about, it's a, it's a film about finding the humanity behind the uh, apparent kind of cliche or the apparent kind of um, political or sexual or racial definition of the individual. It's about that. that to me, it was a film that questions every kind of definition we put on ourselves, you know, Stephen Ray. I mean, basically the film was kind of almost like an obstacle course for the central character. You know, his name is Fergus. He's a white Irish nationalist. Yeah. He's straight as a die, you know, and in a way, the, uh, the way the whole screenplay is constructed, the whole story is constructed, is to present him with things that are the actual opposite of everything he thinks, how things should be, and see, can he still survive as a human being and still see the human being behind the different characters he encounters, you know? And it comes to its most critical issue when he, uh, when initially he's kind of totally thrown by the fact that Dill is a man, you know? And she comes to see him again. She says, well, you don't like me. I'm still the same person. He goes, yeah, no, I like you, you know? And so eventually he has to kind of, he has to kind of transcend every definition of what, what it is to be a human being that he thought he had, basically. That's, that's, that's what I think the message of the movie is. Quite a good uh, lesson for people living today, really, who only seem to be able to see binaries and everything. <laughs> I hope so, yeah, I hope so, yeah. Because we live in weird times, don't we? We live in weird times. Um, mm. No, I, I, that's why I like that. I, that. I think I'm glad you said it like that, because I think you're right. That's exactly, it challenges everything all the way through. And I, I think that was, uh, that, that was brilliant. So, uh, mm. yeah, Neil, it's been lovely to talk to you uh, okay. about The Crying Game. And um, obviously, you know, we could talk forever about all the other great films you've you've done. Uh, Any particular projects you're you're busy with at the moment? Oh yeah, I have. I've got a few things. I've I've just written a novel that's coming out, yeah. And I've got a movie I really want to make, yeah. Fantastic. It's set in in Germany. Germany, the present day and the 20s and the 30s, yeah. We shall watch this space. Neil, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Goodbye now. Cheer you up. See you. And don't forget, you can hear lots of other LGBT-themed interviews and reunions on Distinct Nostalgia, as well as my beautiful laundrette, Morris, and the talented Mr Ripley. We've also a History Boys reunion, in which actor Sam Barnett talks about playing the mixed-up gay character Posner. It does get in by osmosis, and it starts to become part of you, whether you realise it or not. And I played that character for two and a half years, um, you know, including the film and, and the world tour and all that. And when it ended, I was 27 years old and I started playing that when I was 24 years old. Um, and when I stopped playing it at the age of 27, it's like I grew up because I'd been playing this 17-year-old, angsty, screwed up, pain-ridden, confused child. And I didn't realise until after I'd stopped playing it 
what an effect that had had on me emotionally and psychologically. And um, I mean, I even changed physically in the year after I stopped playing that. I, I sort of grew up, my body changed. People commented on how different I looked. And I just think the mind is an extremely powerful thing, isn't it? And I, I, I definitely related so much to what Posner was going through at school, you know, being in love with someone at school, someone who wasn't in love with him, all of that unrequited stuff. And then there was plenty of stuff about Posner that wasn't me, but I did just get him on such a gut level and a feeling level and an instinctive level straight away. That's the Great History Boys reunion on Distinct Nostalgia. Search wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. <laughs>